or we have started a new series on discipleship. And if you were here last week, you know that I anticipated groans. Because it's kind of like back to school, right? Oh, back to school. That's how it is in my house anyway. Uh, some of you are like, back to school, yay! And discipleship was kind of the same way. I knew as soon as I introduced that topic of discipleship, there'd sort of be spiritual groans amongst many of us because discipleship we normally think of as very difficult. You know, discipleship, when I say that word as Christians, we think that it's a race that tires us out, you know, and we just end up quitting eventually running that race of discipleship that we maybe keep up for a few weeks or a few months. Or we think of disciples as sort of super Christians that... You know, well, I'm just a Christian. I'm not really a disciple. I can't, I can't measure up to that disciple standard. And, uh, or we think of discipleship as a bar that just keeps raising, right? You know, I've done discipleship in the past and, and you get so far and then you realize you gotta learn more, memorize more, do more. There's another spiritual discipline. You're fasting. You're, you know, wearing sackcloth and ashes, whatever it is. There's always another bar to get to and get over in discipleship. So we sort of have that spiritual groan as Christians when we think of discipleship. And so last week, for those of you that were here, you'll remember that I wanted to sort of base this series on discipleship that we're getting into and this this theme and this season of discipleship that we are going to move into, uh, but I'm preempting it with a few sermons first before we really sort of roll it out. Um, I wanted to simplify it. And so discipleship got simplified last week down to this verse, just one verse for you for discipleship. This is as easy as I can make it. It is the shortest parable of Jesus. Matthew 13:44 says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and then in his joy or from joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And just to quickly recap there were three truths of discipleship on that in that verse. And it was the value of the treasure, the man's response and his motivation from joy. And so acquiring the kingdom, which is what I'm saying is discipleship, to acquire the kingdom of God is discipleship. To become a disciple is is to acquire the kingdom of God through Jesus. And it begins with acknowledgement of the supreme value of God's kingdom. You will not be a successful disciple unless you fix in your heart and in your mind and you nurture in yourself and you culture in yourself just the incredible value of God and His kingdom and what Christ has done. A disciple treasures Christ above everything is more valuable than anything we could possibly possess and to acquire the kingdom costs everything that we have but the joy is that it doesn't cost us any more than what we have it costs us all the same thing it's all within our grasp it is all affordable to us And that acquiring the kingdom is not a sad or grudging or difficult transaction. Discipleship is not something that we should groan about because it says, and it's so important that Jesus put these two words in this parable, he says, in his joy or from joy he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Discipleship is joyful, we learned last week. And if you didn't uh, get the whole... Last week we elaborated on why it was joyful. So if you're sitting there saying, why is discipleship going to be joyful? You need to go back to the website and listen to last week and you'll get those things. But the parable illuminates this truth. It doesn't say that we need to pay for the kingdom of heaven. That's not what it's about. It's not talking about real estate ethics. We're not wondering why this guy covered up a treasure and then went and bought cheap land and didn't tell the owner that he had a treasure there. That's not what the parable's teaching. Jesus isn't teaching about real estate or merchandising ethics. 
The truth is simply this. The kingdom of God is so valuable that exchanging everything we have on earth to acquire the kingdom is a good deal. And so discipleship is a joyful exchange because the treasure is so valuable. We discover we're able to afford it and the price turns out not to be a burden at all. That it is an easy, glad transaction. And that's why he said from joy. So that's the good news. That's the great starting point for our discipleship process is that it's all going to be based around this. Is that as disciples, we are simply pursuing a joyful pursuit in treasuring Christ and treasuring God and his kingdom above everything else that we have. And as that great old hymn said, um, trying to get the verse exactly right now, the things of this world become strangely dim because he is far more valuable. And that's exactly what Jesus is teaching here. That the treasure of the kingdom makes everything else pale in comparison. And that's good news for us as disciples. So what else does this simple parable tell us about disciple? Maybe you've been trying discipleship and you've been trying to further your your relationship with God, but you're just not feeling like you're really getting it. And we want a new way of looking at discipleship, a new approach, a better understanding of exactly what God is doing and how we can join him in what he's doing in our life rather than trying to do a whole bunch of things by gritting our teeth and kind of clenching our fists and saying, I'm going to be a better Christian. I'm going to be a better Christian. Well, God's got a better way. And one of the things that we learn from this, there's three implications that I want to go through this morning Again, from this verse, we're just sticking on this verse right now, Matthew 13, 44. Three implications apart from what we learned last week that we take away from this. And let me just pray as we begin unpacking God's word. Father God, as we look at this simple parable again, discipleship is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. A child can understand it. Your gospel is a simple message. It's profound but it's simple. And so, Father, as we open up your word and we just read this this one sentence that Jesus spoke and told a whole story, a whole lifetime of stories in this one sentence, I pray that you would illuminate us by your Holy Spirit, that we would see what he is teaching us about being your children, about being a disciple that follows after you and treasures you above all else. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, this is the verse. And uh, last week I switched sermons 20 minutes before we started, and so the, the little blanks in your sheet didn't line up. Today they line up, okay? So you're good to go, and the PowerPoint works. I didn't change anything at 5 o'clock this morning. Um, Matthew 13:44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Three implications. And the first one is this, that there is no room in Christianity or there's no room in discipleship for small admissions or small ambitions. And so it may help to think of the parable and and your own discipleship in this way. Think about when you first started to consider religion or consider spirituality or consider faith. At some point in your life, you started to consider this. Maybe it was at some point when you were very young because you went to church with your parents, but you're eight, nine years old, whatever, you had to think about what did religion mean or what was faith to you. Or maybe you were older in life and, and you had tried different things or just came to church late in your life and you didn't really know what you were looking for exactly. Or you can even think about how you approach it right now, today. This might be how you're approaching it. And so like this man, you were just sort of going along through life. You were, you were walking through trails and you were walking through fields like this man and perhaps you were even on a specific spiritual journey. 
that you were searching as you went. You were approaching faith or you were approaching religion looking for something. And at that point, you were, or maybe you are today, you were willing to admit that you were in need of something. Otherwise, why would you be looking? Why would you be considering religion? So, so you were willing to acknowledge that you were in need of something. And, and you expected when you started this journey into spiritual things that, that you would have to admit to having a small need and you would admit to then receiving a little bit of help. And that's all you wanted out of this whole faith thing, out of this whole religion thing. You realized or you recognized that, that you just wanted to receive a little bit of help, to just get through a relationship maybe, or to kick an addiction, or just to get through exams, or you know, to get through high school, or to get control of your anger, or to be a better parent. Whatever it was you recognized in your life, I need something and I'm willing to admit a little bit and I just need a little bit of help. And that would be enough. And maybe that's all you want out of your Christian faith even today. You don't want to admit much and you're scared to receive more. But the reality of the kingdom of God and the implication of this parable as this man goes through life and the reality of the gospel and what the Bible teaches us is that it does not allow that. When you discover the treasure of the kingdom of heaven, it pushes you out to the extremes in what you must admit and what God will provide. The message of the Bible and of the gospel of Jesus is that we're all like this man walking in the field looking for something, but once we kick over that lump of dirt, And once our eyes fall on the treasure of the kingdom of heaven, and what we discover will no longer let us get away with the small ambitions we started out with. We started out on this search for religion or faith or whatever, Christianity or whatever it was about. We started out with very small ambitions. But the Bible will not let you get away with saying that you're mostly okay and you just need a little bit of help. It says that you have rebelled against God and that you are a sinner and you are in need of salvation. But the great news, the treasure that the man kicks over and stumbles across in the field, the best news is is that it's available and affordable. And once the man discovers the kingdom of heaven, he's no longer allowed to have small ambitions. He realizes he has to go and sell everything that he has in order to acquire that treasure that he's found. And that's the reality of the gospel. That's the reality of the Christian faith that you've signed up for. Once you kick over that lump of dirt and you see the treasure that is God and the kingdom of heaven and eternal love and salvation through Jesus Christ for even sinners like us, then you realize your ambitions were way too small. And you're not allowed to have small ambitions nor are you allowed to admit only small things. You have to admit that you are a sinner before a holy God and that you need much more than you thought you came for faith for. The Gospel says a little help doesn't cut it. You have to become something brand new. Your whole life has to change. You have to admit much, but receive even more. And so after he kicks over that lump of dirt and finds the treasure, the man, if he wants it, has to admit that the treasure of the kingdom of God is not just a small thing, but the kingdom of God is everything. And we think we're looking for some little help, some little tune-up, some little bit of wisdom, or just some good advice, or, or maybe just a healthy group of people to hang out with that are better than our other friends. And that's all we really wanted out of Christianity. That's all we really wanted out of following Jesus, was just smooth things out a little bit. And in return for a little bit of help, then we won't have to admit much or commit very much. We'll go to church sometimes, we'll acknowledge God, we'll, we'll try to kick a few bad habits. We won't have to do too much. But this parable tells us that when you find that treasure 
of the gospel, we discover that things are far worse and far better than we imagined. The kingdom of God is not a small thing that can be received for just anything, but it is an ultimate thing that requires everything. The gospel says your ambition was too small. God wants to give you more than you could have possibly expected to find in that field. The man finds in that field more than he could have possibly expected. And the Bible says there is more out there, more joy, more hope, more eternal love for you than you ever expected. So you've got to do away with your small admissions and your small ambitions. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't imagine the treasure of the kingdom of heaven of knowing Jesus for eternity. And so there is no room for small admissions or small ambitions in this life of a disciple. If you're going to be a disciple, then you have to set aside small ambitions. You have to go for it all. The kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God. You have to confess it all to receive it all. C.S. Lewis, as he so often does, encapsulates the meaning of this so accurately for us and updates it for us in a small parable of his own. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes, Imagine yourself as a living house, and God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing. And so you are not surprised. But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? And the explanation is, is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here and he's putting on an extra floor there and he's running up towers and he's making courtyards. And you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live it in himself. This is what the parable is teaching. This is what the meaning of the treasure is. Is that to be a disciple is to embrace the immensity of what laying claim to the kingdom of heaven requires. What do you think it means when we are saying we are inheriting the kingdom of heaven? Those words come so easily out of our mouth, but can you imagine what it is we're saying? We are going to be with God in eternity in the kingdom of heaven. That is not a small ambition. God is not offering you something small. He's offering you something great. And the disciple, the man in this parable, understands precisely what he found when he kicked over that lump of dirt. And so he was a man who said, I will go in joy. From my joy, I will go and give everything that I have in order to acquire that treasure. And you thought all you had to show God was a few leaky pipes or, or you just thought you had a crooked wall somewhere in your life and you just thought God had to do this little thing and you would be okay. But God says, no, there's a lot more wrong than that. But let me in and I will give you bigger ambitions and a bigger reward than you can imagine. And so the first implication of this parable is that as disciples, we have to get in our heart that there's no such thing as small ambitions for a disciple. The treasure is far greater than to allow us to have small ambitions. The second thing that is, and this is a little more subtle than you'll see it in the third one. The second and third one almost go together. The second one is that discipleship is an exchange of an old kingdom for a new. The second implication is that Christianity is not a change by degrees. It is a change into a new dimension of living. And the Bible calls it a transition from one kingdom into another kingdom. And that means that as disciples, if we are to learn from this parable, that you are giving up your old king for a new king. You are giving up your old authority for a new authority. You are coming out from under your own rule into God's rule. 
You can't live in both kingdoms. Either God is your king, or you are your own king. And this is what rankles most people. This is what ruffles most people's feathers. This is a challenge or a barrier to their discipleship. It gets their back up that to be a Christian must be so clear-cut and so clearly defined that you can't serve two masters. You'll love one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money, it says in Matthew 6.24. You are either a sheep or a goat, and Jesus is going to separate the sheep from the goats in Matthew 25. Your father is God or your father is the devil. Jesus says in John 8.44 to the Pharisees, Christianity and discipleship is not a matter of degrees. It is a matter of transference from one kingdom to another. And in this parable, you either have all of your old stuff, you have all of your old treasures, you have all of your old processes and systems and affections and things. You either have, as he illuminates in the next verse, the one the one the many pearls or the many possessions that you had as a merchant or you have the one greatest pearl you can't have both he says and so most people hate the sharpness of this you know as as in our flesh and as people before we come to be disciples of jesus christ we like gradations and we like degrees and we prefer to dabble than to commit but here's just one example of of the implication of this as it applies to us as disciples and what discipleship means Here's just one example of transferring from our own authority to God's authority as a disciple. Something as basic as the truth of the Bible. And lots of people like to say, oh, I believe in the Bible. I, I believe the Bible's the Word of God. It's a good book. It has a lot of wisdom in it. God probably inspired a lot of it. But a lot of people like to say, but there's some verses in there that you know, my more sophisticated modern intellect and culture realizes that I can't accept because they're clearly written from a less sophisticated and less evolved social ethic or culture. And so there's a few verses in there that I just cannot accept. But you and I believe basically the same thing. It's only a matter of degree. I mean, you, you believe all of the Bible and I believe all of the Bible minus about 10 verses. But essentially we believe the same thing. It's just a matter of degree. We almost believe exactly the same thing. No, it's not a matter of degree. It's not a difference of, of degree but of dimension. Because on what is it that you're deciding that even one verse in Scripture is right and acceptable and true and another verse is not? Is it based on God's authority or your own authority? If you believe that you have the authority to assess Scripture, then you're denying God's authority over His own Word and over your intellect. If you put yourself in authority over Scripture and authority over your own intellect, even for one verse, then you have judged them all and simply decided which ones you will accept and you won't. And so you may think that it's just a matter of degree, that we believe in essentially the same Bible and you know there's only maybe five or six verses that you disagree with, but it's not a matter of degree. It's a matter of one kingdom or another. Are you in authority or is God in authority? Is He in authority over His Scripture and your intellect and your ethic? in your culture, or are you in authority over his word and what he says? Because here's the irony. Unless you are also already sanctified, unless you are already perfected, or you are somehow equally perfect like God, then there must be parts of the Bible that rub you the wrong way. If you're sitting here today and nothing in the Bible bothers you, then you're already sanctified and perfected because you agree perfectly with God. And none of us here do that. And so the irony is is that you should find verses in the Bible that trouble you because that is what tells you that the Bible is an authority over you. If the Bible was not an authority over you, if you could simply dismiss whatever verses you wanted to casually dismiss, then none of them would ever bother you because you just get rid of the ones you didn't like. 
And so the irony of this is, is that trouble with verses is actually a sign that it is an authority over you. Because you sort of rebel and you say, I don't want to accept what that is telling me I have to accept. But if you're a disciple, if you've exchanged the old kingdom for the new, and you've exchanged the old authority of yourself for the new authority of God, then the Bible will rub you the wrong way in some parts. Because God has authority over His Scripture, and He has even authority over your intellect. And so those two positions are not a matter of degree. They are opposite kingdoms. You either fall under God's authority or you don't. And if you set yourself in authority over Scripture and over social ethic and over your intellect, then God is not an authority in your kingdom. You're part of a different kingdom. You're part of your own kingdom. In Colossians 1, Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. The reality of discipleship is that there is a new authority. There's a new sovereignty. There is a new kingdom that we belong to. As a Christian, as a disciple, as someone who has undergone a change of dimension, not degree. If you're a disciple, you've moved from one kingdom to another. And the man of the parable, he leaves all that is old and he moves into everything new. And the parable shows an exchange, an exchange of affections, an exchange of treasure, an exchange ultimately of rule in his life. What has he set his heart after? His old stuff or his new treasure? Or as we looked in our last psalm of the summer, what our sort of disciple example model David said in the end of Psalm 16, I have set the Lord before me. I've set the Lord before me. I've fixed myself on Him. He's my King. He's my authority. I follow Him. And thirdly, the third implication, which is sort of tied to the second, is that it's an exchange of old flesh desires and affections for new affections. And this is really the root of what we, an extension of what we talked about last week. It says, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he had and buys that field. And this implication is fairly straightforward. The discipleship is the exchange of everything old for everything new. And so when you first enter into the kingdom of God, you don't really know what you've gotten into. You don't really know what sanctification is going to be all about. You don't know what it means to become more Christ-like or to move out of one kingdom into another. And you're not sure what it means to give God authority over everything. But the lifelong process of discipleship is the lifelong process of putting the kingdom of heaven and redemption and Jesus ahead of everything else in your life and everything else is on the block in exchange for receiving the kingdom. You can't hold on to old treasures at one time and at the same time receive the new treasure. There has to be an exchange of what used to be considered important in your life, of what was cherished in your life, of what was treasured in your life. An exchange of that for something new, for the kingdom of God and for Jesus Christ. And we considered this briefly last week. The man selling all that he has must have been giving up some important things. He may have had works of art. His house may have been filled with paintings. He may have loved art and had Rembrandts and Picassos and whatever in his house. And he had to go and sell all of that art. He may have loved classical music. He may have had the best classical music collection. Or, you know, maybe he was a big U2 fan. He had to sell all his old CDs. Right? He had, he had things from his childhood. He had things from his parents. He had, he had all kinds of stuff. And you can imagine that the stuff that that man had to give up, when it says he sold everything, he had to sell things that were important to him. Family businesses, houses, a cottage. You know, maybe he had like a whole garage full of 1970s Camaros that he had to give up, you know, or like, you know, ping golf clubs. You know, he had to sell those. 
you know, a Harley Davidson. I don't know. He had. I'm thinking of guys' things here. Uh, <laughs> You know, he had to go. There were things that he cherished, that he treasured, that he had to sell them all because what he discovered when he kicked over that lump of dirt and he found the treasure was that all his old affections were nothing compared to the affections of that treasure of the kingdom of heaven. He may have even had to break up family relationships or sell a family business. Peter and John did it. James. He couldn't desire anything more highly than the treasure and still receive it. And now we need to notice again here that how the man received the treasure is not how he merited or earned the treasure. He couldn't earn it. It was far more valuable than the field he was buying. There was no way that he could have possibly bought the treasure except that he found it in a place that was affordable for him. And that's why he was so joyful. That's why he was so happy. Because there was no possible way he could have ever earned or merited that treasure. It had to be a surprise find. It had to be a gift. And the treasure of the kingdom of heaven has already been merited for you by Jesus Christ. It's not something that you earn. It's not even something you earn by stirring up greater affections. It's not a matter of meriting it or earning it by simply accomplishing a new kind of work. It's a matter of it already having been paid for by Jesus and then discovering it and loving it so much because of what you've discovered. The man did have to do something in order to receive it. Not to earn it, not to merit it, but in order to receive it, the man did have to do something. He had to love it more than everything else. He had to recognize it for the treasure that it was. And that's where discipleship starts. That's where it started with us. There was a point, you brothers and sisters in Christ, you know what I'm talking about. There was a point in your life when your eyes were opened, when the dirt was kicked off, and you realized the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. And you loved it above everything else. And discipleship is simply nurturing that love and that affection for the kingdom of heaven, for the forgiveness that we've received through Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross. And so having found it, he had to desire it more than anything else he had. This is what a disciple is. This is what a Christian is. It is one who is desiring Christ above all other affections. Every other treasure that you had before is now subordinate to it. Every other authority or king or sovereignty or rule that you thought you had in your life is now subordinate to Jesus. And every other affection and treasure and thing that you cherished before in your life is now subordinate to Jesus and His kingdom. That's what discipleship looks like in a Christian. And the good news, the gospel is that many of our old affections were hurtful and destructive affections in the first place, and they needed to be replaced. And this is why the cost is so low, because we give up our old, weak ambitions, or we give up our old, meager pleasure in earthly things that moths will destroy and rust, moths will eat and rust will destroy, and we give up those things in exchange in joy for eternal things. That's what this little one-sentence parable is all about. You unpack what's going on in this man being willing, gladly, in joy to sell everything because he realizes the things that he had are nothing compared to the kingdom of heaven. And this is the practical application in terms of affections for our discipleship. Is that affection for Jesus and affection for the kingdom of heaven and cherishing what he's done for us and, and building and nurturing that affection for Jesus is the way that we displace the old things of the world that we were trying to get rid of in the first place. 
You're trying to get rid of an addiction or you're trying to get rid of a, a habit or you're trying to get rid of a hurt or you're trying to get rid of some sin in your life and it keeps gnawing on you and drawing you back in and drawing you back in and you keep trying to sort of grit your teeth and, and, and clench your fists and deny the temptation or deny the sin. Rather than doing that, Jesus says, just set your affection on me. Displace that old pleasure. Displace that old affection in your heart with a far greater treasure. Thomas Chalmers is an amazing pastor. So many of these old pastors are so great. 1780 to 1847 wrote this incredible sermon that you could go and read. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. It's incredible that we have these sermons from the 1800s online. You can just go and read them. And uh, it's old English, so it's kind of hard to get through. But I'll give you one paragraph. Thomas Chalmers explains the disciple-making power of setting our affection on Jesus. He says, The love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. In other words, he says, You can't just say, That's sin, I don't want to do it. But, it may, but may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself? The heart cannot be prevailed upon to part with the world by a simple act of resignation. But may not the heart be prevailed upon to admit into its preference another? who shall subordinate the world and bring it down from its wanted ascendancy? The only way, the only way to dispossess ourselves of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. It's only when the spirit of adoption is poured out upon us and the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection that we are delivered from the tyranny of former desires in the only way that deliverance is possible. Do you see what he's saying here? He's talking about this man in this parable. The only way the man would give up his passion for all the other stuff in his life is because he found a new treasure that was far more cherished than what he had before. And that's how we as disciples do discipleship. We don't just grit our teeth and clench our fists and say, I gotta stop doing that. I'd really love to do it, but I gotta stop. I gotta, I gotta stop it. Jesus says, no, just set your heart on a far greater treasure and on a far greater affection. And that affection and that thing that you love will diminish. It will be expunged. It will be displaced by a far greater thing. Until I'm filled with an affection for Jesus, I will never be free of affection for the world. And so when we repent first and always, we repent first and always for our lack of affection for Jesus, our lack of treasuring and cherishing God and His kingdom. We can repent for lots of sins. And we can never seem to make any headway repenting for those sins again and again and again. And we don't seem to make any progress. We have to first and always start with repenting of the lack of the small affection that we have for Jesus. His discipleship has no room for small affections or small ambitions. As we focus our affection on Jesus, our affection for lesser things diminishes. And so how does a disciple do all of this? Let me bring this down to something even more practical. I tried to be practical through that, but here's even more practical. How do you do this? How do you give up your small ambitions? How do you have great ambitions? How do you exchange old authority for new authority? How do you exchange old affections for new affections? Well, you do this simply by doing things like going to church. You come here and you hear the Word of God preached. You sing gospel truths into your hearts. You sing those new choruses and those old hymns that contain gospel truth and you sing them into your hearts. You, you sing them to yourself. 
And you hear the Word of God preached and you have the Holy Spirit illuminate in your minds and apply it to your conscience. And you read the Bible yourselves and you become familiar with its patterns and its words and its themes and the message of redemption and the love of God that He's speaking through His Word. And you meet the God of the universe in those pages that He wrote through His Holy Spirit. And you learn about Him. And we do it through prayer and being honest with God about ourselves and depending on Him and learning to obey Him. That's how you do this. That's how you transfer one authority to another. That's how you move from one kingdom to another. That's how you nurture these affections. It's through these very simple things that God has told us to do. Why do you think He told us to do this? Because He said, this is what it means to be a disciple. This is how you do it. And then we do it by countering old affections with new. In our old kingdom, in our old life, we used to love gossip say. We used to love the, the sense of power that gossip gave us, of, of being in the know and having sort of authority over other people because you know we could affect people's opinion of them by our words. And that love for gossip was in our heart and we just loved it. And that love of gossip doesn't go away until it's replaced by a more powerful affection. A love for what Jesus loves. What did Jesus love? He loved to esteem other people more highly than himself. He loved to protect those that had stumbled. He loved to care for those that were wounded and needed caring for. We need to learn the humility about our own sin and our own shortcoming. And when you love those things more than the smug satisfaction of gossip, then the temptation of gossip disappears because you've replaced it with a far greater affection. You've replaced it with what Jesus loves. Or another example, in our old kingdom, our old love, we used to love domineering in relationship. The idea of conquesting other people. You know, one man or one woman after another. People just existed to please us. In fact, anybody around us was just a means to our own joy or our own satisfaction. And we valued them only in as much as they didn't cross us. And if anybody crossed us, then we wrote them off. That was our behavior. As soon as we stopped benefiting, they were of no use to us. But then as we exchange that love for our own power or that love for our own self-satisfaction and we exchange that love for a love of powerlessness, then the temptation and the practice of abusing relationships fades away. And we love to serve rather than be served. And we love to live at peace with others rather than in conflict. And we start to look like disciples. Do you see what I'm saying? This is what discipleship is. It is the displacement of something that we used to love in our flesh and cherished and grabbed onto in our flesh. It's the replacement of that with a new affection, an affection for the things that God loves and for Jesus himself. So these are the practical results of discipleship. Set your treasure, set your heart, set your affections on God and on Jesus. And by setting your affection on him, you displace all these other things. And you begin to live and walk and act like a disciple. That's what discipleship is. Setting our affection on and always nurturing our affection for Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, you've painted a picture here of a disciple in in just one sentence. And there's a lot of stuff we could dig out of this field Lord, I, I just, I mostly want us to see that being a disciple really comes down to one simple thing, and it's loving you above all else. That is constant state of exchange, of setting down and releasing the things of this world, and setting our hearts and our minds and our affections on the kingdom of God, and all of that means 
on Jesus Christ, on His sacrifice, on His love, on the example that He set, on what He did, on what on Your love towards us. We need to cherish that like the greatest treasure that it is. And as we do that, Lord, we'll be disciples. That's what being a Christian is. It's loving Christ. And so, Father, I pray for us as we continue and move on even from this verse and move on into other things you've taught us about discipleship, Lord. I pray that this would never leave us. That all of our discipleship, all of our working together to grow and mature as Christians would focus on this one thing, that we desire Christ above all else. And we love you and cherish you above everything else in our life. And that we would set everything else aside in order to stand for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.